My father, Phil, might be the strangest, most infuriating, and ultimately most beautiful person I ever met. Let me explain. We set our scene on a schoolyard in Boston, roughly the year 1971. My father's about nine years old, and he's wearing little sneakers with butterflies on them. They were a gift from his mother, so of course he had to wear them to school at least once. What happened next is probably unsurprising. Other boys mocked him, called him names, and stomped on his shoes. Even at this young age, the norms of masculinity were deeply ingrained, and my father was being policed by his peers for violating them. But our story gets more interesting. I like to think that after that day, or gradually after many years of similar treatment, something in my dad snapped. He decided that whatever game he was being asked to play, the game of competing with other guys to be the coolest and manliest by acting tough and playing sports, was not one he would take part in anymore. Take part in anymore. Instead, he took interest in things totally outside the realm of what was normally accepted as cool and he found his own ways of fighting back against his bullies. He was a quick study of the subtle art of making fun of someone without that person knowing they're being made fun of. Such a quick study that one of his grade school teachers sent a report to my grandparents that said, Billy's the type of boy who likes to start trouble and then sit back and walk. You can imagine that this was a thrill for me to grow up with as his son. Was my father right to rebel against this manliness game? And what even are the rules of this game exactly? I'll turn the question to the group. How are men and boys taught to behave if they are to be accepted? What are they taught to like, think, and feel? Fail? Uh, like the color blue. Like the color blue. <laughs> Gavin? Play sports. Play sports. Jackson? Not show emotion. Don't show emotion. Hmm. Hayden? Be physical instead of um, expressive. Be physical. Reese. Be tough. Be tough. Ned. Work out. Work out. Gavin. Don't wear nail polish. One more time. Not wearing nail polish. Not wearing nail polish. Maruli. Suck it up and deal with it. Suck it up and deal with it. So many great answers. Thank you. In the masculinity workbook for teens, Chris Ragaluth, a past Pasquana camper and counselor, and Jack Ragaluth's older brother simplifies these pressures into six main rules, which he calls the guide code. You've hit most of them already, but here's the list in full. Rule number one, guys should hide difficult emotions. Number two, guys should be tough at all times. Rule number three, guys should be players, meaning they attract and have casual relationships with multiple women. Rule number four, guys should call the shouts and be alphas always in control. Number five, guys should play sports and not school so much. And finally, number six, guys shouldn't be like those other groups, namely girls and gay people. While we all have different experiences with these rules, they are communicated constantly through books, TV, and social media, and from our parents, peers, schools, and religious communities. They dictate how guys are supposed to behave what we should like, and how we should think and feel. As I read these rules, some of you giggled or exchanged knowing glances, some of you rolled your eyes, some of you looked just plain uncomfortable. And I think that's because nowadays, in media, art, schools, etc., these norms are under more scrutiny and discussion than ever. They're satirized in comedy sketches we see on YouTube and TV, they're debated in the halls of Congress, 
and they're deconstructed in university lecture halls. Yet all the while, we continue to be um, exposed to them through our daily interactions and through depic depictions of our favorite athletes, celebrities, TV characters, and more. For many of this, for many of us, this starts to feel like mixed messaging. Act tough, but not too tough. Play sports, but learn some dances on TikTok while you're at it. But what Chris makes clear in his book is that the rules of the guy code are not necessarily damaging by themselves. For many boys and men, they can feel familiar, healthy, and even comforting. Others might prefer some rules to the rest and want to pick and choose what works for them. Regardless, building awareness of masculine norms can help us be more intentional as we navigate growing up and becoming the men we want to be. This awareness empowers us to ask, am I doing this because it's something I actually want to do, or because it fits with one of these masculinity rules that I've internalized without realizing it? So, besides taunting schoolyard bullies, how did my father respond to the guy code as he grew older? When he was in sixth grade, my father developed a passion for guitar and spent hours learning rock and folk tunes. By the time he was in eighth grade, he was practicing at least four hours every day, and he soon discovered that classical guitar, the genre of music written by names you may know like Beethoven, Bach, and Mozart, was even more interesting to him. By 10th grade, he had decided that classical music was his calling, his vocation, and he had pursued it relentlessly ever since. You are exceptionally fortunate if you know exactly what you want to do for the rest of your life at the age of 15. And decades later, my dad is still a professional guitarist and composer, meaning he writes his own music. And he specializes in a very specific style within the contemporary classical genre. If you turned on the radio and started channel surfing, you'd be searching for a while before you found anything remotely similar to the type of music I'm referring to. For many listeners, this music comes across as dissonant and arrhythmic, almost like random noises. You may have to strain to pick out a melody or even a recurring pattern. To devote your life to this type of music, or even try to play it, you have to be a stalwart contrarian. And indeed, my father was, and is, exactly that. While he blossomed artistically, Dad developed a hatred of competitive sports, and in many cases, the people who played them. To him, sports and the arts were like oil and water, cats and dogs, Montagues and Capulets, which is to say, mortal enemies. It was jocks who bullied him for wearing the wrong shoes as a boy, and jocks who later mocked his love of music as nerdy, lame, and, and effeminate. So what did all this look like while he started to raise a son? Well, as a father, his quick wit and love of teasing were in full form. He loved to call me all sorts of nicknames. Well, in the college, he still called me such epithets as Little Puppy and Baby Boy, Scooter, and his personal favorite, Peter, a word that has no meaning, but he thought it sounded cute. Incidentally, this is almost exactly how I speak to Guinevere. The more I'd squirm, the more he'd tease me, though I later learned this was his way of showing affection. Naturally, he and my mother, a classical pianist, had me taking music lessons from a very young age. Thankfully, my mom came, came from a family of athletes, and she believed a child needs to stay active, so I also played plenty of sports growing up. Funnily enough, because my mom worked long hours, it was my dad who would ferry me from practice to practice, often with an exaggerated grouchiness. Sometimes when he picked me up from school for practice, he would bellow my name across the schoolyard at the top of his lawn. Henry! Then shuffled over in his worn-out Merrill's tattered khakis and a stained fleece, a uniform he often wore for several days in a row before changing. 
Keeping up appearances around town was of no concern to Henry. Sounds like it's time to go, Henry, kids around me would say, chuckling. For most of my life, I resented my father for being so different. I wanted a father who would throw a baseball with me, be cool around my friends, and show me how to talk to girls. Instead, I got one who took every opportunity to set himself, and by extension me, apart from the crowd. During most of my adolescence, I was reluctant to have friends over or even be seen in public with them. It was only when I moved out of the house and into college that I began to understand and appreciate the gifts my father did give me. The first of these is the ability to understand my own feelings. You, remember, you may remember guy code rule number one. Guys should hide difficult emotions. In her book on masculinity, The Will to Change, black feminist writer Bell Hooks writes that men are hurting, and the culture responds to men by saying, please do not tell us what you feel. As a result, many men live their lives burying their emotions, except in many cases for anger, which is the one emotion sometimes considered masculine. As Jack Ragaluth once said in a conversation that has stuck with me ever since, the problem with bearing emotions all your life is that if you do so for long enough, it can become almost impossible to feel anything at all, even when you want to feel love for a close friend or family member, joy after an accomplishment, or grief after a family member has passed away. For all his quirks, my father was someone who wore his heart on his sleeve. And on a grander scale, he dedicated his life to finding and honing his own unique form of self-expression. Even when that form of expression was mocked, rejected, or misunderstood, it, misunderstood by everyone from classmates to music critics. My father stood by the art form that moved him and strove to share it with others. I credit my father's example for the fact that as a teenager and to this day, I've always found it very natural, natural to articulate how I feel and listen not only to my emotions, but to those of the people around me. There are certainly times when being more sensitive has its drawbacks, but has become one of my favorite things about myself. My father also taught me about love. Hooks argues that many men are discouraged for giving and receiving love because love is too often seen as weak and effeminate. For Hooks, love is not only an emotion, but an action. She quotes psychiatrist M. Scott Peck to say that love is as love does. It's the desire and act of giving a bit of yourself to help another and to nurture their growth. Without that step of taking action, love is nothing at all. When I first heard this definition, I was struck by how similar it sounds to how we talk about service at Pasquani. We love this community and all the people who are part of it. So we give our time and energy to make it a little bit better, however we can, to help it grow. However, when we list off the classic Pasquani virtues that we hear in chapel talks and tree talks, we speak of honesty, kindness, courage, friendship, seizing opportunity, tough-mindedness, but so rarely do we mention love. I'd like to change that. And we can start by being willing to tell each other, I love you, more often. For as long as I remember, my father was able to express his love to me. <laughs> He was always present. As I said earlier, it was my dad who ended up driving me to music lessons and sports practices alike. He cooked me most dinners and checked in to make sure I had done my homework. Despite his hatred of sports, we'd spend hours playing catch and talking in my room, even as he made snark snarky comments like, is this fun for you, throwing an object back and forth through space all day? He was also looking to bridge the gap between his more obscure intellectual interests and my, ch and my childhood curiosities. When I was in middle school, my dad composed a trio for piano, cello, and violin, 
that I performed at the local women's club with one of my mom's piano students and another classmate from school. It was called Peach, as in the princess from the Mushroom Kingdom, because middle school Henry played a lot of Mario games. And it sampled and reworked the melody from Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl, which is apparently a song I was obsessed with at the time. But I can't discuss my father's love for me without mentioning one night when I was also in middle school. And I started crying as I tossed and turned in bed. My dad heard from the hallway and came in to ask me what was wrong. Who knows what triggered this in me, but I told him I was scared of death. What could possibly come after? Is it like closing your eyes forever and seeing only empty blackness? My dad didn't know. No one knows. But he held my hand and did his best to answer my questions. He told me he loved me, he cried alongside me, and he stayed by my side until I was able to fall asleep. It might not seem like it on the surface, but what my dad did took remarkable strength. It takes strength to know that love often requires giving up your sense of power and control in order to be present and responsive to the needs of another. The problem with the rules of the guide code is that they leave no room for this sort of nuance. Put all six rules together, and they amount to a stereotype that might be familiar and comfortable for a short while, but is ultimately too small to hold the rich soup of experiences, thoughts, and beliefs that make up a human life. In his chapel talk on music and friendship last year, Rich DeSalvo included a quote from the poet Adrian Rich to make the point that a good friend is one who does justice to our own complexity. A healthy masculinity does the same. By bucking against masculine norms and refusing at all turns to be anyone but himself, my dad set me free. Free to decide for myself what kind of man I want to be. In his own playful, if sometimes infuriating way, he gave me an early awareness of what the norms of masculinity are. And he taught me that even if it costs me shallow friendships in the short term, the ability to be my own authentic self will earn me richer friendships in the future. At camp, we are so fortunate to be surrounded by many different models of masculinity from across generations. Interestingly, interestingly, almost all the more tenured leaders in our community are teachers, a care-oriented profession, which is statistically more likely to be occupied by women than men. It is these same role models who have passed on so much knowledge about our most rugged activities, like rowing with Townley, hiking with Jack Rags, and our manliest activity of all, canoe tilts with Christosaldo. We have counselors and campers who excel at all varieties of sports, but also those who are skilled and devoted musicians, artists, woodworkers, actors, and writers. We have men and boys in this community who dress more traditionally, as well as those who wear nail polish, makeup, and clothing traditionally worn by women. We have men who are tough and stoic, men who are caring and sensitive, and men who manage to be both at the same time. Just as, I, just as I have found it instructive to think about how my father interpreted the guide code in a way that works for him, I urge you to think about how the people you look up to at camp and at home have chosen to follow or reject parts of these norms. Doing so will bring you one step closer to determining for yourself what masculinity means to you. Thank you.